0: Chapter eleven of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter eleven. Meanwhile, large deductions had been made from my stock of money, and the remnant would be speedily consumed by my present mode of life. My expenses far exceeded my previous expectations in no long time i should be reduced to my ancient poverty which the luxurious existence that i now enjoyed and the regard due to my beloved and helpless companion would render more irksome than ever some scheme to rescue me from this fate was indispensable but my aversion to labor to any pursuit the end of which was merely gain and which would require application and attention continued undiminished. I was plunged anew into dejection and perplexity. From this I was somewhat relieved by a plan suggested by Mr. Thetford. I thought I had experience of his knowledge and integrity, and the scheme that he proposed seemed liable to no possibility of miscarriage. A ship was to be purchased, supplied with a suitable cargo, and dispatched to a port in the West Indies. Loss from storms and enemies was to be precluded by insurance. Every hazard was to be enumerated, and the ship and cargo valued at the highest rate. Should the voyage be safely performed, the profits would be double the original expense. Should the ship be taken or wrecked, the insurers would have bound themselves to make ample, speedy, and certain indemnification. Thetford's brother, a wary and experienced trader, was to be the supercargo. All my money was laid out upon this scheme. Scarcely enough was reserved to supply domestic and personal wants. Large debts were likewise incurred. Our caution had, as we conceived, annihilated every chance of failure. Too much could not be expended on a project so infallible and the vessel, amply fitted and freighted, departed on her voyage. An interval, not devoid of suspense and anxiety, succeeded. My mercantile inexperience made me distrust the clearness of my own discernment, and I could not but remember that my utter and irretrievable destruction was connected with the failure of my scheme. Time added to my distrust and apprehensions." The time at which tidings of the ship were to be expected elapsed without affording any information of her destiny. My anxieties, however, were to be carefully hidden from the world. I had taught mankind to believe that this project had been adopted more for amusement than gain, and the debts which I had contracted seemed to arise from willingness to adhere to established maxims more than from the pressure of necessity. Month succeeded month, and intelligence was still withheld. The notes which I had given for one-third of the cargo and for the premium of insurance would shortly become due. For the payment of the former and the cancelling of the latter I had relied upon the expeditious return or the demonstrated loss of the vessel. Neither of these events had taken place. My cares were augmented from another quarter. "'My companion's situation now appeared to be as such "'if our intercourse had been sanctified by wedlock "'would have been regarded with delight. "'As it was, no symptoms were equally to be deplored. "'Consequences, as long as they were involved in uncertainty, "'were extenuated or overlooked, "'but now, when they became apparent and inevitable, "'were fertile of distress and upbraiding.' indefinable fears, and a desire to monopolize all the meditations and affections of this being, had induced me to perpetuate her ignorance of any but her native language, and debar her from all intercourse with the world. My friends were, of course, inquisitive respecting her character, adventures, and particularly her relation to me. The consciousness of how much the truth redounded to my dishonour made me solicitous to lead conjecture astray. For this purpose I did not discountenance the conclusion that was adopted by some, that she was my daughter. I reflected that all dangerous surmises would be effectually precluded by this belief. These precautions afforded me some consolation in my present difficulties. It was requisite to conceal the lady's condition from the world. If this should be ineffectual, it would not be difficult to divert suspicion from my person. The secrecy that I had practised would be justified in the apprehension of those to whom the personal condition of clemenza should be disclosed by the feelings of a father, Meanwhile, it was an obvious expedient to remove the unhappy lady to a distance from impertinent observers. A rural retreat, lonely and sequestered, was easily procured, and hither she consented to repair. This arrangement, being concerted, I had leisure to reflect upon the evils which every hour brought nearer, and which threatened to exterminate me. My inquietudes forbade me to sleep, and I was accustomed to rise before day and seek some respite in the fields. Returning from one of these unseasonable rambles, I chanced to meet you. Your resemblance to the deceased Lodi in person and visage is remarkable. When you first met my eye, this similitude startled me. YOUR SUBSEQUENT APPEAL TO MY COMPASSION WAS CLOTHED IN SUCH TERMS AS FORMED A POWERFUL CONTRAST WITH YOUR DRESS, AND prepossessed ME GREATLY IN FAVOR OF YOUR EDUCATION AND CAPACITY. IN MY PRESENT HOPELESS CONDITION, EVERY INCIDENT, HOWEVER TRIVIAL, WAS ATTENTIVELY CONSIDERED, WITH A VIEW TO EXTRACT FROM IT SOME MEANS OF ESCAPING FROM MY DIFFICULTIES. My love for the Italian girl, in spite of all my efforts to keep it alive, had begun to languish. Marriage was impossible, and had now, in some degree, ceased to be desirable. We are apt to judge of others by ourselves. The passion I now found myself disposed to ascribe chiefly to fortuitous circumstances, to the impulse of gratitude, and the exclusion of competitors, and believed that your resemblance to her brother, your age and personal accomplishments, might, after a certain time, and in consequence of suitable contrivances on my part, give a new direction to her feelings. To gain your concurrence, I relied upon your simplicity, your gratitude, and your susceptibility to the charms of this bewitching creature. I contemplated likewise another end. Mrs. Wentworth is rich, A youth who was once her favorite, and designed to inherit her fortunes, has disappeared for some years from the scene. His death is most probable, but of that there is no satisfactory information. The life of this person, whose name is Clavering, is an obstacle to some designs which had occurred to me in relation to this woman. My purposes were crude and scarcely formed." I need not swell the catalogue of my errors by expatiating upon them. Suffice it to say that the peculiar circumstances of your introduction to me led me to reflections on the use that might be made of your agency in procuring this lady's acquiescence in my schemes. You were to be ultimately persuaded to confirm her in the belief that her nephew was dead. To this consummation it was indispensable to lead you by slow degrees and circuitous paths. Meanwhile, a profound silence with regard to your genuine history was to be observed, and to this forbearance your consent was obtained with more readiness than I expected. There was an additional motive for the treatment you received from me. My personal projects and cares had hitherto prevented me from reading Lodi's manuscript— A slight inspection, however, was sufficient to prove that the work was profound and eloquent. My ambition has panted with equal avidity after the reputation of literature and opulence. To claim the authorship of this work was too harmless and specious a stratagem not to be readily suggested. I meant to translate it into English and to enlarge it by enterprising incidents of my own invention. My scruples to assume the merit of the original composer might thus be removed. For this end, your assistance as an amanuensis would be necessary. You will perceive that all these projects depended on the seasonable arrival of intelligence from The delay of another week would seal my destruction. The silence might arise from the foundering of the ship and the destruction of all on board. In this case the insurance was not forfeited, but payment could not be obtained within a year. Meanwhile the premium and other debts must be immediately discharged, and this was beyond my power. Meanwhile I was to live in a manner that would not belie my pretensions, but my coffers were empty." I cannot adequately paint the anxieties with which I have been haunted. Each hour has added to the burden of my existence, till, in consequence of the events of this day, it has become altogether insupportable. Some hours ago I was summoned by Thetford to this house. The messenger informed me that tidings had been received of my ship, In answer to my eager interrogations he could give no other information that she had been captured by the British. He was unable to relate particulars. News of her safe return would indeed have been far more acceptable, but even this information was a source of infinite congratulation. It precluded the demand of my insurers. The payment of other debts might be postponed for a month, and my situation be the same as before the adoption of this successless scheme. Hope and joy were reinstated in my bosom, and I hasted to Thetford's counting-house. He received me with an air of gloomy dissatisfaction. I accounted for his sadness by supposing him averse to communicate information which was less favorable than our wishes had dictated." HE CONFIRMED, WITH VISIBLE RELUCTANCE, THE NEWS OF HER CAPTURE. HE HAD JUST RECEIVED LETTERS FROM HIS BROTHER, ACQUAINTING HIM WITH ALL PARTICULARS, AND CONTAINING THE OFFICIAL DOCUMENTS OF THIS TRANSACTION. THIS HAD NO TENDENCY TO DAMP MY SATISFACTION, AND I PROCEEDED TO PERUSE WITH EAGERNESS THE PAPERS WHICH HE PUT INTO MY HAND. I HAD NOT PROCEEDED FAR WHEN MY JOYOUS HOPES VANISHED. Two French mulattoes had, after much solicitation and the most solemn promises to carry with them no articles, which the laws of war decree to be contraband, obtained a passage in the vessel. She was speedily encountered by a privateer by whom every receptacle was ransacked, in a chest belonging to the Frenchman, and which they had affirmed to contain nothing but their clothes, were found two sabers and other accoutrements of an officer of cavalry. Under this pretense the vessel was captured and condemned, and this was a cause of forfeiture which had not been provided against in the contract of insurance. By this untoward event my hopes were irreparably blasted. The utmost efforts were demanded to conceal my thoughts from my companion." The anguish that preyed upon my heart was endeavored to be masked by looks of indifference. I pretended to have been previously informed by the messenger not only of the capture, but of the cause that led to it, and forbore to expatiate on my loss, or to execrate the authors of my disappointment. My mind, however, was the theatre of discord and agony, and I waited with impatience for an opportunity to leave him. FOR WANT OF OTHER TOPICS, I ASKED BY WHOM THIS INFORMATION HAD BEEN BROUGHT. HE ANSWERED THAT THE BEARER WAS CAPTAIN AMOS WATSON, WHOSE VESSEL HAD BEEN FORFEITED AT THE SAME TIME UNDER A DIFFERENT PRETENCE. HE ADDED THAT, MY NAME BEING MENTIONED ACCIDENTALLY TO WATSON, THE LATTER HAD BETRAYED MARKS OF GREAT SURPRISE, AND HAD BEEN VERY EARNEST IN HIS INQUIRIES RESPECTING MY SITUATION. Having obtained what knowledge Thetford was able to communicate, the captain had departed, avowing a former acquaintance with me and declaring his intention of paying me a visit. These words operated on my frame like lightning. All within me was tumult and terror, and I rushed precipitately out of the house. I went forward with unequal steps and at random— Some instinct led me into the fields, and I was not apprised of the direction of my steps till, looking up, I found myself on the shore of schoolkill. Thus was I, a second time, overborne by hopeless and incurable evils. An interval of motley feelings, of specious artifice and contemptible imposture, had elapsed since my meeting with the stranger at Wilmington. Then my forlorn state had led me to the brink of suicide. A brief and feverish respite had been afforded me, but now was I transported to the verge of the same abyss. Amos Watson was the brother of the angel whom I had degraded and destroyed. What but fiery indignation and unappeasable vengeance could lead him into my presence? With what heart could I listen to his invectives? How could I endure to look upon the face of one whom I had loaded with such atrocious and intolerable injuries? I was acquainted with his loftiness of mind, his detestation of injustice, and the whirlwind passions that ingratitude and villainy like mine were qualified to awaken in his bosom. I dreaded not his violence. THE DEATH THAT HE MIGHT BE PROMPTED TO INFLICT WAS NO OBJECT OF AVERSION. IT WAS POVERTY AND DISGRACE, THE DETECTION OF MY CRIMES, THE LOOKS AND VOICE OF MALEDICTION AND UPBRAIDING FROM WHICH MY COWARDICE SHRUNK. WHY SHOULD I LIVE? I MUST VANISH FROM THAT STAGE WHICH I HAD LATELY TRODDEN. MY FLIGHT MUST BE INSTANT AND PRECIPITATE. To be a fugitive from exasperated creditors and from the industrious revenge of Watson was an easy undertaking, but whither could I fly? Where should I not be pursued by the phantoms of remorse, by the dread of hourly detection, by the necessities of hunger and thirst? In what scene should I be exempt from servitude and drudgery? Was my existence embellished with enjoyments that would justify my holding it, "'encumbered with hardships and immersed in obscurity? "'There was no room for hesitation. "'To rush into the stream before me "'and put an end at once to my life "'and the miseries inseparably linked with it "'was the only proceeding which fate had left to my choice. "'My muscles were already exerted for this end "'when the helpless condition of Clemenza was remembered. "'What provision could I make against the evils that threatened her?' Should I leave her utterly forlorn and friendless? Mrs. Wentworth's temper was forgiving and compassionate. Adversity had taught her to participate, and her wealth enabled her to relieve distress. Who was there by whom such powerful claims to succor and protection could be urged as by this desolate girl?' Might I not state her situation in a letter to this lady, and urge irresistible pleas for the extension of her kindness to this object? These thoughts made me suspend my steps. I determined to seek my habitation once more, and having written and deposited this letter, to return to the execution of my fatal purpose. I had scarcely reached my own door when someone approached along the pavement, The form, at first, was undistinguishable, but by coming at length within the illumination of a lamp it was perfectly recognized. To avoid this detested interview was now impossible. Watson approached and accosted me. In this conflict of tumultuous feelings I was still able to maintain an air of intrepidity. His demeanor was that of a man who struggles with his rage, His accents were hurried and scarcely articulate. "'I have ten words to say to you,' said he. "'Lead into the house and to some private room. My business with you will be dispatched in a breath.' I made him no answer, but led the way into my house and to my study. On entering this room I put the light upon the table, and, turning to my visitant, prepared silently to hear what he had to unfold." he struck his clenched hand against the table with violence. His motion was of that tempestuous kind as to overwhelm the power of utterance, and found it easier to vent itself in gesticulations than in words. At length he exclaimed, It is well. Now has the hour. So long and so impatiently demanded by my vengeance arrived. Well, Beck! WOULD THAT MY FIRST WORDS COULD STRIKE THEE DEAD. THEY WILL SO, IF THOU HAST ANY TITLE TO THE NAME OF MAN. MY SISTER IS DEAD, DEAD OF ANGUISH AND A BROKEN HEART, REMOTE FROM HER FRIENDS IN A HOVEL, THE ABODE OF INDIGENCE AND MISERY. HER HUSBAND IS NO MORE. HE RETURNED AFTER A LONG ABSENCE, A TEDIOUS NAVIGATION AND vicissitudes OF HARDSHIPS. HE FLEW TO THE BOSOM OF HIS LOVE, OF HIS WIFE she was gone lost to him and to virtue in a fit of desperation he retired to his chamber and dispatched himself this is the instrument with which the deed was performed saying this watson took a pistol from his pocket and held it to my head i lifted not my hand to turn aside the weapon i did not shudder at the spectacle or shrink from his approaching hand with fingers clasped together, and eyes fixed upon the floor, I waited till his fury was exhausted. He continued. All passed in a few hours. The elopement of his daughter, the death of his son. Oh, my father, most loved and most venerable of men, to see thee changed into a maniac, haggard and wild, "'deterred from outrage on thyself and those around thee "'by fetters and stripes. "'What was it that saved me from a like fate? "'To view this hideous ruin and to think by whom it was occasioned, "'yet not to become frantic like thee, my father, "'or not destroy myself like thee, my brother, my friend. "'No, for this hour was I reserved to avenge your wrongs and mine "'in the blood of this ungrateful villain.' "'There!' continued he, producing a second pistol and tendering it to me. "'There is thy defence. "'Take we opposite sides of this table and fire at the same instant.' During this address I was motionless. He tendered the pistol, but I unclasped not my hands to receive it. "'Why do you hesitate?' resumed he. "'Let the chance between us be equal, or fire you first. No, said I, I am ready to die by your hand, I wish it. It will preclude the necessity of performing the office for myself. I have injured you, and merit all that your vengeance can inflict. I know your nature too well to believe that my death will be perfect expiation. When the gust of indignation is past, The remembrance of your deed will only add to your sum of misery, yet I do not love you well enough to wish that you would forbear. I desire to die, and to die by another's hand rather than by my own. "'Coward!' exclaimed Watson, with augmented vehemence. "'You know me too well to believe me capable of assassination. "'Vile subterfuge! Contemptible plea! Take the pistol and defend yourself!' You want not the power or the will, but knowing that I spurn at murder, you think your safety will be found in passiveness. Your refusal will avail you little. Your fame, if not your life, is at my mercy. If you falter now, I will allow you to live, but only till I have stabbed your reputation. I now fixed my eyes steadfastly upon him and spoke. How much a stranger are you to the feelings of Welbeck! How poor a judge of his cowardice! I take your pistol and consent to your conditions. We took opposite sides of the table. Are you ready? he cried. Fire! Both triggers were drawn at the same instant. Both pistols were discharged. Mine was negligently raised. Such is the untoward chance that presides over human affairs, Such is the malignant destiny by which my steps have ever been pursued. The bullet whistled harmlessly by me, leveled by an eye that never before failed, and with so small an interval between us. I escaped, but my blind and random shot took place in his heart. There is the fruit of this disastrous meeting. The catalogue of death is thus completed." Thou sleepest, Watson. Thy sister is at rest, and so art thou. Thy vows of vengeance are at an end. It was not reserved for thee to be thy own and thy sister's avenger. Welbeck's measure of transgressions is now full, and his own hand must execute the justice that is due to him. End of chapter 11